On today's episode of the Eater Upsell, Greg and I are sitting in the studio with Chef JJ Johnson, who's the executive chef of Minton's, a legendary jazz club with really good food in Harlem. And up until very recently, also the executive chef of The Cecil, which is now also called Minton's and is sort of the same thing. But the point is, JJ is here and we'll be talking with JJ in just a minute. Okay, so Helen, I had a, there's something I wanted to talk with you about. Um, I ordered a bowl of pho at a Vietnamese restaurant and I was by myself. And, you know, as I do with any food I order, I took a photo of it using my iPhone and I, you know, maybe adjusted it, styled it a little bit. And as I was eating this dish, I realized, I remembered that, like, this restaurant I was at um, had been recommended to me on the basis that they served really good banh mi and not the pho. But I wanted to get the pho, and one reason why is because I knew that I wanted to take a photo of that instead of the sandwich. Oh, damn. Yeah. It seemed like it would be a fun challenge to shoot that, and I knew the light was really good where I was, and... It was the first moment where I realized that I actually ordered something because I wanted to take a photo of it. I'm not sure if this is going to make you feel better or feel worse. Okay. But I will tell you the truth, mm-hmm. which is I do this all the freaking time. This makes me feel better, yeah. I will go so far as to request tables by the window so I can use natural light or even eat dinner at ungodly early time so that the sun hasn't set yet and I can make sure that the light on my food that I'm going to photograph is going to be pretty. But yeah, I have I have ordered something because I think it will be prettier. Well, that makes me feel good. I mean, I wasn't necessarily feeling bad at this moment. I, it was just kind of funny um, that I realized it, I think, because I wasn't conscious of the fact that I was making that decision for that reason. But also I was thinking you know what? That's like a healthy reason to want to order something. I mean, aren't the visuals just as important? And, you know, it's kind of like a weird, quiet, silent hobby that a lot of people like us, I feel like, have. Is like you want to shoot something. It's fun. It's I think it's completely okay. I think, you know, we, you know, you nailed it. I think that we engage with our food in a lot of different ways. We talked about this a lot in our episode from season two with Evan Sung, Mm -hmm. that you know, food looks really interesting and that's just as much a part of its appeal as the way that it tastes or the way that it smells. And especially if you're someone like for whom Instagram or whatever your photographic conveyance of choice is, is important to you. Mm-hmm. It's totally okay for that to be part of how you decide what you're going to eat. Do you have a favorite dish that you've ever shot, uh, either for your own enjoyment or like to share it on? Like a favorite food yeah. photograph? Yeah. Like, oh man, I don't like know a if favorite I could pick photo. a favorite you know, in my previous life, I don't know how obsessively our Upsell fans have Google stalked me. But in my previous life, I was an editor at the magazine Sever. And Sever is, um, at least while I was there, one of the things that we did was editors shot a lot of the stories. We didn't just write them and edit them, but we also took a lot of the photographs. So I got really into food photography while I was at Sever. And I would shoot things regularly for the magazine. I remember One of the Thanksgiving issues while I was there, I shot something like 75 or 80 photos for that issue of the magazine. That's crazy. Um, And I have shot a ton of pictures that I don't like because I was like this garbage and I'm a terrible photographer. But I think one of my very favorite pictures I have ever taken was for a story that I wrote in Sever many years ago about a recipe for a hamburger that Ernest Hemingway wrote. It was like his favorite Uh, hamburger uh recipe and Mm -hmm. it was totally bonkers combination of spices and ingredients in the patty and I shot the photo for that story and it was just this beautifully styled burger and I shot it against a wooden background and it was like I looked at it and I was like man this is a great fucking shot like it was one of those things where 
you know, if you're ever doing some kind of creative thing, if you're a writer or you're an artist or you're a songwriter or whatever it is that you do, sometimes you make something and you look at it and you're like, this is so good that I can appreciate it without feeling like this is about ego. Like, I didn't even make this. Like, the universe simply channeled itself through me. And that's how I felt about this burger photo. I was just like, this is perfection. Did you get any I mean, feedback from it? Were people did Or did people notice it? Or was it just like crickets, but you knew that you'd done something that you were really proud of and you, you would always have that? You know, the tragic thing is that it ran in a, a print magazine. I mean, it's online. If you look up Hemingway's hamburger on silver.com, I'm sure you will see the picture for it. But because it ran in a print magazine, like I didn't post it to Instagram. So I didn't get that like immediate feedback, right? Like the, the approval that we seek. I should post it on Instagram. I mean, this photo is easily three years old at this point. So maybe I can do it as like a throwback Thursday. I've got an idea for you. Okay. Why don't you post it on Instagram the day that this episode airs? That's an amazing idea. That's such a great idea. I'm going to totally do that, Greg. My Instagram, by the way again, if you have not sufficiently stalked me, is at Helen R, my first name, and then the first letter of my last name. I will post an image of this burger that I shot for Sever back in 2014. We'll see. Give me feedback. Tell me you love me. <laughs> Feed the hole of hunger and need for attention that I have in my heart. Now in the Eater Upsell Studios, we have J.J. Johnson, the chef at Minton's, a very acclaimed and cool restaurant slash jazz club in Harlem in New York City. J.J., welcome to the Eater Upsell. What's up? What's up? Thanks for having me. It's super exciting having you here um, for many reasons, one of which is that before your only job title was executive chef at Minton's, you were also executive chef at the Cecil. Yes. Which is now also Minton's. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it's a slightly complicated relationship. But the Cecil is slash was one of the most exciting restaurants in New York. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. Exciting restaurants in New York, one of the most exciting restaurants in the world. People would come from, I mean, everywhere. Uh, ambassadors were coming from West Africa to dine with 10 to 15 people. Um, I would go cook in Israel, and then I would be in the Israel newspaper, and then people from were flying in from... Tel Aviv or Jerusalem would come and dine at the restaurant. So it was, you know, it was exciting. And when you wanted to come uptown to Harlem, that was your place to go. But we just merged it now into Minton to give you both amazing feelings, this amazing jazz of what Harlem was in that room, and then the amazing food of the Cecil to give you both of those experiences in the one. How has the transition been? Has How has the guest response been? Guest response has been good. Uh, weekends are really busy. Um, Cecil regulars are coming over to dine. Um, and it, 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 it's fun, you know, I get to, I get to play with new flavors. Uh, I get to cook in a smaller dining room. I get to be able to really touch every table and see everybody that's coming in. Were both restaurants sharing the same kitchen? Were you like cooking for two restaurants out of one kitchen? Yeah. Was that the, the setup? Yeah, oh. I was definitely cooking. I was definitely cooking out of two restaurants for one kitchen, but Mince's menu was really small. It was really focused on the jazz. It was never focused on being a restaurant. It was like a place where you went to the Mm -hmm. Cecil or you went there first and then you came in to see music afterwards and kind of hung out and drank these amazing cocktails and were able to eat some things. Minton's is hot and it stayed hot, uh, you know, several years after it opened, which is like an unusual thing in New York City. I mean, I remember the opening of the Cecil was a very big deal. Like it's probably definitely actually one of the biggest openings, I'd say, above 59th Street of like the last decade. But 
it was the kind of restaurant where like you kept hearing just word of mouth kept growing and people kept going and talking about it and I'm just really happy that you guys are, are still rocking and rolling and well it wasn't just word of mouth too like the Cecil was Esquire's best restaurant of the year it you know was getting tons of accolades under that name and it felt like a lot of the excitement really centered on your menu um, and the storytelling that you did with the menu. Yeah, I mean, you know, I went to Ghana and cooked there with Alexander Smalls in Accra and was able to come back and translate that menu or that experience. But from that, I was able to really find myself as a person. Like, you go to culinary school, you're told what to cook, and then you go into the field and you start cooking. And you're like, I'm going to cook Italian. I'm going to cook French. I'm going to work at Danielle. I'm going to work at John George. And that's what you're at the CIA. Like, you're brainwashed. That's what you're supposed to do. And you at kind the of— the CIA, you're yeah, brainwashed. The CIA, brainwashed. <laughs> Different CIA. <laughs> yes, the Culinary Institute of America. And you kind of forget who you are as a person, like where you came from, where your grandmother cooked, or what your auntie cooked. And when I went to Ghana, I really found myself, that light bulb went off to say, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to cook in my life. Now I'm supposed to go back and do research. Now I'm going to go grab my grandmother's cookbooks that are written in Spanish and Google Translate them. Um, I'm going to sit down with my 95-year-old grandfather and talk about my childhood days and when we went to Barbados together and really pull from this diaspora to really tell these stories of these dishes from the start point of West Africa and how that migration, that forced migration, really impacted food. So Cecil means a lot to me. Um, And I was really able to express myself, and I was able to also take that on the road and relate that to other cities, to other people, to younger kids cooking. Um, I mean, I get emails all the time from kids that are just like, I don't know what to do. Should I go? I'm Korean. my, My old sous chef, like, I'm Korean, I'm from Connecticut. I've never been to South Korea. Do you think I should go back to Korea and, like, find myself? And I'm like, if you have the opportunity and the money saved, do it. And he went this summer. And now he's back, and he's just like, I'm like a new person. Yeah, I work at Aquavie now, but I kind of know the flavors of who I am. I kind of know where I'm supposed to be. And now I can express myself through this traditional technique, but these flavors that nobody else really understands but myself because that's who I am. That's a, a really interesting way of crystallizing what I think is a a fundamental tension with the world of culinary school versus the world of restaurants. Like, it is really this—the culinary school experience. I haven't been to culinary school, but, like, in my understanding of it, it is like, you know, it's boot camp. You know, it's this received wisdom. Like, you are learning how to, how to hold your knife this particular way, and you're not learning how to hold— all sorts of knives. You're learning how to hold like a specific French style chef's knife. And there's a very focused, regimented set of skills and techniques. When you were in culinary school, when you were at the CIA, were you taught how to make your own recipes? Like, were you ever taught no. kind of how to find yourself in that cooking? No. I mean, I was the worst guy in my culinary school. Like, in my class was Carlton McCoy, who was a master sommelier. Like, he was supposed to be—we laugh about it. He's supposed to be like me cooking. And I was probably supposed to be him tasting wine because I wasn't good. Um, And yes, you're going to classroom and this is small dice. This is medium dice. This is the way you hold a knife. This is how you make chicken stock. This is how you make veal stock. This is how you make an egg in a cast iron pan. This is how you make an egg in a—and you need that because if you don't have that foundation, you can never create the next recipe. 
Like, I, you would never know how to take, like, my oxtail braising liquid and say, okay, I know this how I make chicken and veal stock, but now I can fortify it with these flavors because I know how to fortify. But now I know I can fortify with cinnamon sticks or p- pink peppercorns or these other flavors. So, yeah, you do need that foundation. And I, I think culinary—I would not be where I am today without going to Culinary Institute of America. But you also wouldn't be where you are without having that— experience in Ghana, where it all right. kind of, which is not to, I think, devalue the culinary school experience, but maybe just, it, it seems to me like increasingly, and this isn't a new trend, but increasingly chefs are looking for more than just a robotic life working the line, right? Like you want to tell your stories, you want yeah. to express yourself and cook things that are meaningful. I mean, today I believe in these next, let, let's take this for example, like Israeli food at one point was considered Mediterranean cooking. If you're from Israel, you cringed. You're like, no, I know we boarded the Mediterranean Sea, but nobody understood what the, you know, coming from Israel and that style of food was like and that it was a melting pot and there's all this flavor and culture. Until one guy really got behind it and said, I'm going to push really hard as a heart and make this impactful. And now Israeli food is looked at as its own cuisine. So I feel like that's what I'm trying to do or I am doing with the food of the African diaspora. I'm just curious how you went from culinary school to connecting with Alexander Smalls, who is this very well-renowned chef and this sort of worldly guy and an opera singer. Like, what did you do right, Um, right after leaving culinary school and how did you find him? Thank you for making me feel that young. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Um, After culinary school, I worked at Tribeca Grill. Um, I worked at Central Vinoteca under Leah Cohen. I worked at Jane, opened up the Smith. Uh, oh, wow. I worked at a, a resort in the Poconos where I'm from called Skytop Lodge. Um, and then uh, I left Central Vinoteca, worked at Morgan Stanley Executive Dining Room. That it's, must have been fun. Yeah, it was super fun. We changed our menu every day. It's like a secret kitchen there. What years were you there? Uh, I was in Morgan Stanley. For, what years? It's 2017, so... 2000, like 10 to 2013. So post-crash. Post-crash, yeah. And it was still like an amazing secret restaurant. Oh, it's insane. Like the the stainless steel shines like no other stainless steel shines in any anybody's kitchen. That's I, So it's in, it's in the Morgan Stanley headquarters? 1585, 41st floor. You have amazing view. And how many folks are working in the kitchen there? 15. Wow. That is a bigger staff than a lot of restaurants. Zach Friedman at that time was the executive chef of that kitchen. He worked at Chantrell. He worked at 11 Madison Park. Uh, He was like real deal. I worked underneath him. I'm totally fascinated by this sort of alternate world of corporate cooking. We talked to Preeti Mistry on the last season, and she used to work in Google's cafeteria, which is famous. I mean, Google's sort of built a lot of their you-should-come-work-here brand on the idea of you get to have this amazing free lunch, whichever of our offices you work in. But it would never have occurred to me that Morgan Stanley had a 15-person kitchen turning out extraordinary food. Yeah, because back then they were going, like post-9-11, they were going out to eat at all these restaurants. Then after 9-11, they said, let's just keep it all in-house. So they went after these, like, really big-time chefs or worked at these amazing places that projected the food that they wanted. And it just kind of fell in—I would never think that I would work at Morgan Stanley. But working at Morgan Stanley also helped me understand the business side of the culinary world. So, like, making sure my budgets were in place because you're going to be really held accountable for that. 
because it's a budget account, your food costs, your labor costs, all these things that, yeah, you were taught, but this was the way of life. This was, you needed to make sure, yeah, you have 50 parties this week, but you can't spend more than this amount of money because that's all it's budgeted for. And then you have to be able wow. to make that work. Did you have any sort of creative uh, freedom in that job? Or was it like, okay, this is what the people want to eat. I have to make this new American food or whatever. We definitely, I definitely had creativity there. We change our menu every day. So, I, you know, I work with Embarical Pork. I work with Fla Gras. I work with Truffles. Um, Morgan Stanley Food. We worked with, you know, whole, <laughs> we would break down, we would do like, you know, whole animals and use each part because, you know, you weren't feeding like 100 people. So you were able to do these, you know, you were able to do 30, you know, 30 people for lunch, 30, 50 people for dinner. So you were able to like really work with like D'Artagnan, DeBraga, the, sm the farms within their program. You were running really, a small restaurant. Yeah, running a small. A small, small high-end restaurant. Super small, high-end restaurant. Where nobody left tips. Nobody left tips. <laughs> so, <sighs> so the path from corporate cooking for Morgan Stanley to spending a month cooking in Ghana to open the Cecil. So when I was at Morgan Stanley, my, my time was running out, and I would, t I would speak to, you know, Zach Freeman saying, you know, what can I do next? He's like, you know, go out and apply, try to get chef to cuisine position. That's where you need to be. And I would apply, I would apply, I would apply, I would apply. And I would get, I would do tastings. I could get called back for interviews. And then, like, I'm sorry, we're going a different direction. And I kept saying, why? Why are you not hiring me? What can I, what do I need to do? Do I need to leave like corporate America and then go back and take a sous chef position? Like, help me, just help me out. And I would say this to chefs all the time, or restaurateurs, and now we get no answer. And then, um, I, why was that? Why do you think you think it was just the, the sort of there's a stigma against corporate cooking or I mean, it could have been a stigma against corporate cooking. I, I, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. It's only an assumption of kind of how I felt. I just was not getting the opportunity. You know, I went to Culinary Institute mm -hmm. of America. I worked for Drew Nipriyan. I worked at I helped open the Smith and Jane. The Smith has what, seven Smiths now in the New yeah. York City. So you like, had the resume. So I had the resume, but I just was not getting the opportunity. So I said, how can I create the opportunity for myself? I applied to CHOP. That's when CHOP was like, everybody was watching. And Everyone still watches Everybody that still show. watches that yeah. show, yeah. Um, and a young lady, a producer on that show said, JJ, there's this new show coming out called Rocco's Dinner Party. You should apply. You'll be able to really like showcase yourself, your talent, blah, blah, blah. So I applied to Rocco's Dinner Party. I got on Rocco's Dinner Party. And I won my episode. And that's how Alexander found me. He saw my episode. I cook shrimp and grits. My my theme of my episode was around Harlem. The way I cooked the grits, he said, reminded him of his father as a kid. And the judges on that show was Rocco. Marcus was a judge. Kelly Klo was a judge. So it was like a really heavy hitter, foodie, chef, judge episode that I won. So it, was, it wasn't like it was just these stars eating dinner. You had legit people like sort legit of validating people. your ability mm -hmm. to cook these grits. So then I get this random email from this man, Alexander Smalls, that only time I was Googling and you just see an opera singer, but he was saying he was a chef. <laughs> and he was like, won all these awards as an opera singer. And he actually lived 10 blocks from where I lived in uh, Harlem. And we had breakfast, we chatted. And then he became more of like a mentor for me in the beginning and then turned into my boss and we went to Ghana. And the next thing you know, he came back and created the Cecil. So the menu wow. at the Cecil got a lot of a, a lot of attention. I think almost everywhere it was covered, um, people would talk about it as sort of Afro-American Asian or Afro-Asian American or Afro-Asian. And 
one of the things I found super fascinating about the approach that you took to that menu was the Asian component, that that um, the storytelling around the food of the African diaspora, which I think often, particularly in America, is focused on the American aspect of the African diaspora, you were referencing things from the Eastern slave trade. You were talking about like the the progression of of the of forced migration of Africans into India and into Southeast Asia, which is so rare. Well, yeah. So, okay. So you know, like history has these two story sides of the book, right? So you only know what you have. So when we went to Ghana, there was a lot of Chinese that lived there, um, and. My mom's a school teacher, and I would say to my mom, like, I don't understand this. Like, there's all these Chinese people living in West Africa that nobody talks about. And you would, you would see Africans making fried rice on the street. You would see them using soy sauce. You would see them using dried shrimp. You would see them using all these components that you would see in Chinese cookery. Mom said, pick up the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia doesn't lie. So when I would go back, you would see that there was a migration of Chinese immigrants into West Africa. There's also a migration of Southeast Asians into Senegal, like also in like the northern part of West Africa. So if you're in Senegal and you look at the food that they eat and then you look at Vietnam, it's a, the stomach is the same. Like they use glass noodles, they use spring rolls. The technique might be slightly different, but the overall path of food is the same. And then they all migrated together through forced migration. So then when you go to Jamaica, you see the Chinese. And that's where the conversation started. When you go, like as a kid, as going to Barbados, you would see a lot of Indians. And I would say, well, where is this coming from? Well, you have roti, you have curries, you have all this. So that's the stories that I was, I was telling. I wasn't potentially going backwards, even though Africans, West Africans were, go- were going into other parts of the world and the countries. I started researching these hubs of the Africans in certain areas, like in Brazil and Peru and how Africans impacted Portugal. Um, and that's what I was doing. And that was the storytelling that I was telling through the menu or that I still try to tell through today and letting people know, like, the word fusion, we use it. But if you go to certain places in the world, these cultures have lived together for hundreds of years, but nobody understands them. Like, you go to Singapore and you have the Malay, the Indians, and the Chinese. Yes, you're not going to get traditional dishes that you think you would get in Southeast Asia, because these cultures have been living together and they've created their own style of cooking. And I think that's where people start getting confused. Something we've, we've touched on in a, a couple of times in the course of the show is that idea of commingling of cultures and exactly what you just said, that we tend to think of fusion as like a new thing. But in fact, people have been living together and migrating and cross-migrating and immigrating and moving voluntarily or involuntarily for the entirety of humanity. And in fact, the much harder thing to find, maybe even it's just like a false concept, is like a truly pure cultural identity. Like, you know, even in Korean cooking, there's Chinese influences. In Japanese cooking, there are influences from all over. Like wherever people move, they bring their food with them and they bring their techniques with them. And so for us to sort of obsess over this idea of, like, what is pure Caribbean food? Well, there's no such thing as pure Caribbean food anymore. No, or maybe there never was. There was there's, I mean, like, you have these stems of Caribbean food, like, we know jerk stemmed from Jamaica. But, like, if you take a place like Haiti, you could actually connect Haiti. Like, they, they have Creole 
that you can connect Haiti to New Orleans. Then you can correct you connect Haiti to Guinea Fossil. Like there's these connections, and then you can put the food that and the techniques and the spices that have migrated through those places, and you can see that you can see it. It's like gumbo. Like everybody believes gumbo is only in New Orleans, but if you go back. There's a Senegalese-style gumbo. That's where it started from. And I've had that in Ghana, a variation of it. But that they, they just use a lot of dried shrimp and a lot of dried um, fish to execute that dish. And then as time goes on, you're like, oh, my God, I, have, I can get my hands on this. Or I can get my hands on this. And then you have all these variations of the dish. But there is an origin of a dish. You just got to really <laughs> kind of really search hard for it. So do you still do a lot of research? Yeah, you know, I've been really thankful over the last three years. After Ghana, I've been to Israel, cooked in Jerusalem, and kind of saw that melting pot of food. I was in Singapore, really saw that melting pot of food. I just left India and Delhi and really saw that melting pot of food. I think the difference with me and many other people is that when I travel, I'm looking through food through the West African lens. So I see this connection of West Africa in a lot of places and see, and like see a spice or see a chili or see this and, and say, oh, wow, I get this. I understand this now. Now I understand why this works or this doesn't work or um, so on and so forth. So I feel like as I'm progressing as a chef, I'm starting to represent these melting pots of the world and these flavors that people don't understand that I can kind of translate through food. So when you're building a dish, how do you put it together? Are there things that every J.J. Johnson dish has to have? <laughs> I mean, you know, points that it has to hit? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I feel like I have my own mirepas. So my mirepas is base dish is a garlic scallion, I mean, garlic, shallots, ginger, bird's eye chili. That's how we build a dish from that standpoint. And the classic mirepas is like carrots, carrots celery, celery, and onions. And onions yeah. So that's a pretty significant variation. Variation, right? Yeah. So that yeah. that that's like the found that's like my foundation. You'll find that in any of any of my dishes. Um, and then I think the biggest thing that I've learned through traveling to these countries of cultures or these grandmothers' kitchens are the scent, the smell that comes out, the aroma that when it presents to you that you don't really get in a United States restaurant. You get this dish, it's super clean, it could be flavorful, but there's no aroma that draws you in that says, oh, my God, I want this. So, like, if you come and eat the feijoada, you can smell, like, the cumin, the coriander, uh, the cinnamon sticks that are in that dish with the oxtail meat. And before you eat it, that aroma is, like, in your face or while my runners are walking by and you're about to order your food, you're smelling this dish and you're like, oh, my God, I want that. So I would say that's, like, a J.J., um, part of my mirepas that there's this aroma of flavor that comes through through the dining room. Do you have any like dishes that you just you couldn't take them off the menu? Yeah, feijoada's not coming veg feijoada's not off the menu. Do you make like a classic Brazilian feijoada or do you uh, Yeah, so classic Brazilian feijoada has three meats in it. Um this has two. It has merguez, lamb merguez and then oxtail meat. So oxtail meats are braised and then pulled off the bone into it and then we also give you a piece of oxtail meat to like kind of pick up and eat like ribs. Um, and then we use the braising liquid to cook the beans. So you still get kind of like that smokiness from the merguez sausage, but it's not super classic. No, nothing is like classic. It's my interpretation on the food. The gumbo is still on the menu, which is an Afro 
uh, Asian style gumbo. So it has soy sauce, has dried shrimp in it to give you like that oceany feel from when I had it in a grandmother's kitchen in Ghana. And then oxtail dumplings. Um, I feel like over the last three, four years, people really love the way I cook um, dumplings with these unique styles of flavors that you don't get in a traditional dumpling. Um, and then the way I kind of play around with these origins of rice. Rice is a hot button ingredient. I feel like people get very passionate about rice. <laughs> well, we all grew up with it, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Rice is the center is the, the center of the plate. So if you were Italian, you had rice. If you were in India, you had basmati rice. If you grew up in America, you had Uncle Ben's, which I hated, right? My mom made Uncle Ben's terrible. But in the last year in particular, there was a, I don't know if I'd call it a full controversy, but there was like a minor flair, particularly talking about, you know, the food of the African diaspora over, um, what was it, that Anson Mills was producing Carolina gold mm -hmm. rice. They brought it back and they were working with Sean Brock and sort of helping re-establish Carolina gold. And they came under some fire for how expensive it was. Well, so th I think this is where we get confused. So we all buy rice in the store, right? Which is like long grain rice. It has an, it's enriched. It's an enriched grain. It has bleach and it. it has all the stuff in it, right? Glenn Roberts is producing rice that's freshly milled and sent to you. And you have to store it in a refrigerator or a freezer or it will go bad. So perishable. Right. So that's the difference. So that's the dollar $1.50 that you're paying. And you can taste it in the rice. It's like getting, you know, the best possible beef or the best possible chicken. It's the same thing. You're going to, you're going to spend a couple extra bucks on it. And it's just a stigma, right? Rice has always been super cheap. And I work, I work closely with, with Glenn on sourcing like African popping sorghum or using Carolina gold or Tribune, Carolina, all these heirloom grains um, that he produces that I support. But yeah, I mean, you pay five sixty-five a pound for for Carolina gold, or maybe that's what I do. I'm sorry, Glenn. <laughs> and it's a secret chef price. But when you get it and you put it on the plate and somebody has it, it's one of the best rices you can have. And I think when more people start buying it, the price will drop down. What I, what I'm curious. JJ is, you know, you guys are in your groove at Minton's. Um, people are still super excited about that restaurant. I know that you travel a lot. You're kind of a fixture on like the the food festivals. And I'm just kind of curious, like, do you have like an idea of like what you want to do next? Are you thinking about like a book or like another restaurant or are you just locked into Minton's right now? Oh, man, I'm always trying to progress. I'm always on the grind. I mean, that's why you see me yeah. pushing. Um, mm -hmm. So... Me and Alexander have done a book. It's called uh, Between Harlem and Heaven. Oh, that's so good. Um, yeah, so great Afro-American cookery with me and Alexander. So it's going to be, like, fun. And Alexander's the narrative of that book, you know, his big, bold voice. Um, and and then for me, you know, my my goal, you know, so my, two of my goals in my life is I would love to be the Jordan of the culinary world. So <laughs> aim, aim low, man. Can't, can't aim low. So like, you know, how kids are coming up in the world and they looked at Jordan and they were like, I got to buy, I got to put Jordans on my feet and I'll play just like Michael. So I want, I want young African-American kids to grow up and say, I want to be like JJ. I want to get in the kitchen. I can do this. I can do the same way JJ can do it. 
And then I just want to have like an impact on the culinary world like 10 years from now or five years from now. I want you to be able to look back and say, oh, oh shit, JJ impacted the culinary world. He really changed the landscape. The same way David Chang did with uh, ramen noodles, the same way April did with gastro pubs, um, same way Sean Brock did with Southern American cooking. So that's the goal, and that's why you really see me push really hard. So even though I might be throwing a pool party in Miami having fun with my culinary friends, I'm still <laughs> cooking. Or if I'm able to go to another city and express my food on a, on a plate in front of people that have never had my food or read about me, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to do that. I'm also thankful for my team. You know, like my staff has been with me, 90% of my staff has been with me from day one. So they know wow. like how to execute. You know, my lead, my prep guys are the same prep guys. My chef de cuisine, Tiffany Minter, is the same chef de cuisine that I was sous chef and then became chef de cuisine. From day one, we opened up the restaurant. So like my team is, I'm very thankful for them or I wouldn't be able to do any of the things that I do. Um, but no, Minson's will not be the only place you see me. Um, and hopefully I'll be somewhere else expressing, with alongside Minson's, expressing my culinary vision in another place. So, so you can catch you, me in both places. How do you build a, an amazing team that you want to have around you for years? Um, this seems like something a lot of chefs struggle, struggle with. with. They yeah. all, I get these emails. So, like, yeah. I look for good people. So the number one is, like, good people. So I want to hire a good person because if you already know how to cook, like, I can train you the way I want you to execute. Like, I might ride you. You might hear me scream. I might be on you a lot, but I can train you the flavors and get you there. And if I know you're a good person, you're not going to rot. You're not going to steal from me. You're going to come to work every day. When you do call out, it is a real issue. So that's like my main focus, like arms around hugging my employees. Um, and then I just build with them. Like I give all my guys holiday presents. Um, we do a holiday party. I'm respectful to their families. I tell them, listen, I'm going to give you two days off. And you spend that time with your family. And then when you're here, I really need you here. And I tell all of them this when I hire them. like Five-day work week? Five-day work week. That's magical in mm -hmm. the restaurant world. That's unheard Two of. Two days off, back-to-back. -back. Oh, my God. You must have lines wow, around the block of people who want to come work for you. Yeah, I mean, I, or there's really no space to hire, <laughs> you know. So, so you know, that, that's what we really do. Yeah, there's sometimes there's six-day work week. Sometimes we work 12-hour days, you know. But I tell them those are the times you put extra money in your pocket. Uh yeah. But I really respect the balance of both, right? It's just not like if you have a great personal life, you're going to cook better in the in the kitchen. And I'm also just hiring people that potentially would never get hired in other people's restaurants. What does that mean? Like I like my kitchen is by far the most diverse kitchen in the country. We speak 10 languages. They're from all around the world. And, you know, cooking Afro-Asian cookery attracted cooks and chefs that felt like they could relate to it. So I have, guy, I have guys in my kitchen from India, Tibet, China, uh, Guinea and Fossi, Senegal, Mali, African-American, Grenada. Uh, everybody speaks at least two languages, um, even if they speak Patois, but they speak two languages. Um, and some of them speak four or five the implication here is that the restaurant world is still 
pretty racist in its hiring. No, practices. we're not going to say that. Not on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, we would, we would but never. But no, di- di- on, 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 <laughs> just like I tell guys all the time, like you got to really know what you want, right? So if you do brunch, yeah, you might hire like a Miss Brown to do your brunch. She's part time, but I guarantee you she's gonna poach your eggs perfect every time. She's gonna be here every morning. She's gonna set it up. Yeah, she might talk a little bit. She might push her personal problems on you, but if that's all you have to worry about to get perfect poached eggs, make sure your station's set up, you don't have hangover cooks, you're going to have to deal with one or the other. So you deal with the hangover guys, somebody calling out, or you deal with the lady that has a little bit of personal issues and she just wants somebody to talk to, you figure it out. But I'll take her over the calling out to the hangovers any day. Yeah, it does seem like the the overall shift in kitchen culture from the kind of like pirate ship full of lost boys era that everyone lionizes of 20 or 30 years ago to like, no, like this is a real workplace with human beings who, you know, we need to respect and treat like people has allowed for a lot more room for people who are not hungover asshole white dudes. But no, I mean, like the, the badass cook is becoming a sous chef out of culinary school now. He's not or she's not on the line. She's your junior Sue or low entry level Sue that has their stuff together. And you you need that because before there was no Charleston, there was no North Carolina, there was no Nashville. People, kids weren't going there to cook. They weren't going back home. They were going to Chicago, New Orleans, New York City. So there was a bigger crop. Now you have to figure out what you can reach into. I mean, I also hire from the IRC, which is the International Rescue um, program that the United States puts together for people that claim asylum, asylum that come from the, from these countries, and they need Hiring to get refugees. work. Right. So very political act these days. But it's a but if you're in like a if you're in a restaurant that you have woks and you need guys to work on woks and it's hard to find, you got guys coming in from Tibet. This is what they, this is their lifestyle now in their country. They might have been a doctor or this, and they don't want to do it, but they know they need to pay back the government because they got them here. And two. They need to make a living. So then they become your walk eyes or make dumplings for you, whatever it might be. So there are these sources of places to hire from for your restaurant. You might just have to step out the box a little bit and be a little bit uncomfortable in the beginning. Well, we seem to have sort of naturally segued into talking about politics, which I always get very excited about. It's a hard time right now in America to be an immigrant or be a refugee or to, in some environments, be a person who is— very excited to employ immigrants or refugees. How do you feel about the way the world might be taking us? I think um, as a chef or chef to restaurateurs, we've been hiring immigrants or refugees our whole lives. We've worked with them in our kitchens, and those times aren't going to change. That's who's still in the kitchen now. That's who's still going to be in the kitchen. Um and I just go to work every day still doing the same thing unless somebody tells me I can't do it. But all my guys are have I-9s and fill out paperwork and are legit and have identifications. They might be an immigrant or a refugee, but that doesn't change the landscape of the culinary world. Um, and I think everything will be okay. I appreciate your optimism. Because I know, and the reason why I say that because nobody wants to see. We don't want to see, and I say this like as we as like millennials, thirty to forty-five year olds. We don't want to see what our parents or our grandparents have talked about, right? My grandfather's ninety-five yes. years old, <laughs> still going strong, 
And, you know, when I get the chances to talk to him, like, he'll break down some things that you're just like, he's born 1913. Like, he's seen it all. So, like, nobody, like, nobody wants to go through that. Like, that's the only kind of statement I could kind of say. And, you know, all my chef friends that I talk to, I, we're all going to be good. Um, because at the end of the day, the bottom line affects a lot of people. And when the bottom line starts affecting the people at the top, they'll, they have to shift to make sure that they make money or they won't make any, like, they won't be able to do anything. So if we're not being able to farm, agriculture goes out of business, right? Then you're importing. So then you lose 50,000 jobs, right? So I sit on the James Beard Impact Board. So like these things, like these things matter. So those programs are set up. They're good. They might need to tweak a little bit, but it, it's all going to be good. And that's coming from, if you don't know Joseph J.J. Johnson, that's coming from an African-American chef. Like, we're going to be good. <laughs> like, you're going to be all right. Mm. It's going to be some fucked up shit. But I don't think, I think we're going we're to be fine. I really do appreciate it. And I'm from optimism. Pennsylvania. Yeah. I'm from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm from a counties that went red. Yeah. So yeah. we're gonna be we're gonna be good. Yeah. We'll go through like a brief economic and human rights disaster and then we'll realize it was a bad no, idea. No, four years four <laughs> years will come quicker than that, guys. <laughs> okay. We're, I'm we're twenty five days in. That last uh that last bit you just said and just kinda play it over and over again when I read the news. And I'm gonna make it my phone ringer. Optimism. Yeah, yeah, I'll make it. Yeah, we'll make it into a ring. JJ Johnson saying it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. There, JJ says, okay. trust you. Um, on that note, do we have any lightning round questions? And today, our questions are going to be asked by Maureen Janone, who is our executive producer and basically keeps all the trains running on time. You know, I love Maureen. She found me. She found, like, she made Like, you. literally, like, made me. She Maureen like, made you? She worked at New York One. She tasted my food when I wasn't looking. And the next thing I know, wow. she was like in the restaurant every week with like somebody else. And I really appreciate her support. So I'm really nervous to hear her um, lightning round uh, questions here. Okay, Maureen, the lightning round is all yours. Take it away. JJ! It's Maureen. Love you. Love everything you do. Excited that you're here. So I have some lightning round questions for you. First question. Who is your dream musical guest at Minton's? Wow. Shoot. Cast band musician player, uh, Wynton Marcellus. All right. Has he been in? He's been in, but yeah, would love for him to come back and like, I don't care if we just sat there on the stage, like just come back and rock it out. Wynton, if you're listening. He's been in there eating, but not playing. Go hang out at Minton's again. What about um, No Longer Living? No Longer Living, Billy Holiday. J.J. Johnson, the famous trombone player. Not you. Not me. People think it's <laughs> do, me. Do people— People, do like, send, bring me, like, um, his, like, a record. Like, Bryce Schumann came, and he brought me a J.J. Johnson record. Like, to sign? He's like, listen, this is my present to you, man. I love jazz. Rock oh, it out at home. Do you have a record player? That's so cool. Yeah, so Bryce brought that to me when he came up to hang out. So that was, like, really cool. That is really awesome. So it's in my house. I'm, you know. I feel like nobody can argue with Billy Holiday. That's like that's the correct answer. Mm-hmm. Like this is an opinion question. Well, but I mean, Minton's is made. I was like, she made Minton's. A mural, the famous mural that's in the back has Billy Holiday, and you have your assumption of what you think she's doing. So, 
<laughs> we will leave that to our listeners to dive into the details of. Maureen, what's your next question? What's your favorite late night post-service meal? Late night post-service meals like a burger, local bar on 108th in Amsterdam. Um, really cheap. They use pallet free. Uh, they do a really good job. I can't think of the bar's name right now because you just caught me off guard. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, burger burger's, like, really good. Um, or, you know, like, or, you know, or, or just sometimes, like, really good Harlem fried chicken at, like, a really small nook spot. What's your favorite piece of chicken? Oh, we were debating this other day. It's either, either leg or thigh. Those are the only appropriate yeah. answers. I was like, I ate a, a leg the other day. I was like, this yeah. is amazing. Okay, Maureen. If you could redesign the culinary school curriculum, what would you teach first? Um, I would just add in culture. I would add in a, a, a lesson that teaches everybody of culture, where food has been and where it's come from, just so they can understand it a little bit more. And it's not just made up of three places or four places around the world. All right, Maureen, what's, what's, what's next? All right, here's the next one. What's your secret weapon ingredient? Ooh. Secret weapon ingredient. I don't, I love, JJ love. The, just the way I like stir the pot. The secret the, ingredient is love. It's love. It's always love. I always just assumed that love was code for extra butter. No, like really, like <laughs> I talk to the food, I sing, I hum. Like I have my own like technique for Do that. Do you make like, up little songs for each dish? I don't know if I make up, you're going a little far, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> what do you sing to them? I don't know. Whatever pops in my mind at so that moment. So you do make up little songs for each <laughs> No, I love this. I'm totally picturing you like stirring your gumbo being like, food. little pot of gumbo, you're pretty <laughs> awesome. Everybody likes you. Helen, sounds like you have occasionally sung to your I food. sing to literally everything. I have a terrible singing voice and I sing to every inanimate object in my life pretty much at all times. I'm going to take a cue from you guys and start this. It sounds like it's a pretty essential you key do to it. cooking good food. Yeah. <laughs> Maureen, sorry. Do you have any more questions for JJ? If you could cook for one living person, who would it be? Oh, come on, Barack Obama. Yeah. That's like a dream, Barack and Michelle. Like, hey, they appreciate food. They they have real love for it. What she's doing with Let's Move, where he dined. I feel like you run a pretty high likelihood of cooking for them at some point, if you oh, haven't wow. already. I have not, I have not, I have not, never, never. No, I, I, I would, if I had money on my person right now, I would put money on the table. That I've had you both will, attorney generals. There you go. But you, you, I will predict that you will cook for Barack and or Michelle Obama in the next 18 months. I will call you. Yeah. First. I'm, I'm putting, I'm putting this on the table. If you Thank don't, you. I don't it's know what good. I'll do. We'll I don't know what pushing. my side we'll of the bed is. For it. But. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to happen. All right, cool. If you were to open a restaurant on your own, what would the concept be? Ooh, you're trying to just take everything now. You know, people be copying these days, guys. We'll bleep out all of the important words. be copying. I mean, for me right now, I'm really focused on grains and the origins and then relating that to the places I've been and uh, my food and my expression. So... You will, you know, when you, if you look at, like, if you look at dinners I'm doing, you'll see a lot of greens and rices on there. Um, and, and, and that's the focus for me right now. Like, I'm really obsessed with rice and the heirloom and working with Glenn Roberts and other rice brands. I, I went to a rice farm in India. So um, you will see more of that coming for me. It's House of Rice. 
maybe JJ's House of Rice. I like that. Super Ooh. catchy. Boom. It's your fast, casual lunch brand. Hey, JJ's House of Rice. Hey, we, listen, we're going to have you work on marketing next. Totally cool. <laughs> Does not violate my journalistic ethics. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> One, uh, Maureen, what's your next lightning round question for us? If you could transplant your restaurant to somewhere else in the world, where would that be? Oh, I love this question. That's a good question. I mean, Maureen, like, to really be honest, like, the next restaurant for me could be anywhere. So, you know, I just love to cook and express myself. So if I could transport it, if I could transport myself, I'll, I'll cook anywhere next. Um, I wouldn't potentially pick up Minton's and go somewhere because it has so much history there and it's a Harlem place. Um, and they would have to reinvent—we would have to reinvent that. Um, so I would pick up myself and go cook somewhere else if it's down the block, if it's in another city or state. Are there any cities you're particularly excited about right now? Mm. I get excited about Charlotte, Oakland. Um, I'm always excited about Miami. I think it's just warm. <laughs> uh, I'm excited about, like, Crown Heights, Brooklyn. That's where I live. So— you know, all all those places that just have so much culture and kind of c- I can relate to and they can relate to me really makes sense. Well, the world is your oyster. The world is my oyster. <laughs> awesome. Well, JJ, thank you so much for joining us here on the Eater yeah, Upsell. Thanks for joining us, man. If our listeners want to eat your food, they can find you at Mittens in yeah, Harlem. In Harlem. And probably in lots of other cities. And they can sit tight for a year or two years and wait for your cookbook. <laughs> JJ, are you a social media? Are you a social media guy? Oh yeah, guy? so you you can you can find me um, on Instagram at Chef JJ. You can find me on Twitter at Chef Joe Johnson. Um, you can call a restaurant, and ask for me. You can shoot me an email. <laughs> do people just ever call and want to talk? People do. And you just you like, talk hey, to them sometimes. Up, yeah, what's up? What do you need? Come by, let's shot. That's so beautiful. Well, you know the reason why I do that because I don't feel in my time nobody ever kind of just like said. I am got you. I'm going to mentor you. You're going to be my guy. Brian Ellis, the executive chef of the Smith Group, did that. But as he started opening up more Smiths, he couldn't do that as much. So I make sure that I'm able to do that for young kids, old guys. Like I have an apprentice in my, in my kitchen right now that might become a career changer because he can retire early. So he comes in once a week and just hangs out. Um, and he's over 40. So, you know, I just try to help everybody out that I can help out. That's awesome. That's really great. I love the way you keep so your door cool. open, both literally and metaphorically. Well, mm-hmm. JJ Johnson, thank you so much for joining us here on the Eater Upsell. Folks, if you're listening and you're not subscribed to the show, hit the subscribe button or we will come to your home and do awful things to you. That's not actually true. We don't know where you live, but we might. Who knows? Anyway, subscribe to the Air Upsell, follow JJ Johnson on all of his social media channels and eat at his restaurants, and Greg and I will love you forever. Thanks for listening. And sing to your food. And sing to your food. Always sing to your food. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are.